Good morning, Grace. As we're going through the Bible sermon series called Exodus, today's message and scripture is, comes from Exodus chapter 13. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 55. Exodus chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand of the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which, we, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem it with a lamb. Or, it or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of men among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, 
For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them in, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God's holy and precious word. Good morning, church. We've been studying the book of Exodus from slavery to glory. From slavery to glory is the first 15 chapters of Exodus. We're going to take a break after chapter 15 for Advent, for Christmas, and then pick back up in the new year. This is one of the most famous stories in history. It's one of the most famous in the Bible. In fact, if you read the rest of the Bible, you find that it's constantly referring back to this event, this story. Hundreds of times, the rest of the Bible points back to this as being foundational to understanding what God is doing for His people, through His people. We see in this story that God is revealing His name, who He is, what He's like, Yahweh, the God who powerfully rescues His people from slavery and brings them into His glorious presence. Today we're looking at Exodus 13, remembering God's salvation. Remembering God's salvation. Remembering is a huge theme in the Bible. There are dozens and dozens of passages where God specifically causes people to remember. Remember what I have done. Remember what I am doing. Remember how I did this for you. Not just recall it to mind, but to reflect on what he has done so that it will change and shape how you live. That's what it means to remember. Not just like, oh yeah, I remember, and then you forget. No, remember, think on it, meditate on it, so that it literally changes your life. Remember, God says. Remember. So how's your memory? How good are you, how good are you at remembering things? I have the worst memory. I forget things all the time. I forget important things and I forget unimportant things. I forget where I put my keys. I forget where the remote is. It's usually because the kids have put it somewhere else, but that's, that's, that's not, that's okay. Uh, I forget where I put my phone, where I put important receipts. That's my, that's my real issue. I, do, I have so many receipts that where are they? Getting supped up by the dryer. We forget things all the time. Right? We forget things all the time. If you, if you know me and you, and you introduce yourself to me and you're new to me and I hear your name, I will say it several times. I'll write it down because I want to work hard. I want to remember your name. I want to remember. But we forget all the time. We do the same thing on a spiritual level. It is shocking how often we forget the ways in which God had come through for us in the past. There's a saying that I found true. We tend to remember what we should forget and forget what we should remember. 
We tend to remember what we should forget, and we tend to forget what we should remember. Can you relate to that? We tend to remember the letdowns, the failures, the disappointments, the wounds. We tend to forget the times when we feel completely hopeless, but then saw God come through it at really amazing ways at just the right time. We forget those things. In fact, research confirms this, that our brains have a distinct memory bias. I won't get into the neurophysiological side of this because it's really cool, but let me just summarize. Um, Your brain actually pays more attention and remembers more unpleasant experiences than pleasant ones. Did you know that? There's something that happens in your brain where an unpleasant experience gets locked into a part of your brain that you remember it longer and deeper. What does that mean? What, why does that matter? It means that remembering what deserves to be remembered takes intentionality and work. It's not just going to happen. Maybe that's why God repeatedly commands us and calls us to remember. It's also why he gives us specific practices to help us remember. Today in Exodus 13, the Israelites have already left Egypt. They've already been redeemed out of Egypt, rescued out of Egypt. God has unleashed 10 terrible plagues on Egypt, culminating in the worst one, the killing of the firstborn. And God now institutes two feasts or festivals for Israel to commemorate, to remember that event. And the two feasts are the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we see in verse 3 in our text here, the reason, the, the specific reason why he created these feasts. Verse 3, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. He sees the Israelites had been enslaved for over 400 years. That means their way of life, their their culture had been completely shaped by the paganism of ancient Egypt. But now in, in chapters 12 and 13, God is starting to change that. He's beginning to shape them as a distinct culture and a distinct people and to have a distinct religious practice that will set Israel apart from the surrounding nations. God has already delivered his people from slavery, but God's goal is not just a delivered people. His goal is a distinct people, a set-apart people. And the way he does that is by helping them remember. Let me show you what I mean. Three lessons today. Lesson number one, remember God's salvation by celebrating it regularly. In verses 3 to 10 in Exodus 13, Moses gives instruction about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this feast goes hand in hand, again, with Passover, but Passover was discussed in detail in chapter 12. But they are, they, they are connected. They happen literally at the same time. And both feasts were meant to be a yearly reminder of what God had done in liberating his people from slavery. How important were these feasts to setting Israel apart? Well, the Passover literally marked the first month of the first year for God's people. Exodus 12, verse 1. This is the beginning of your existence. You're going to mark time by today, by the Passover. That's how important these were. 
The Passover literally reordered time itself and the way Israel would mark out their yearly rhythms. Think about it. A complete reorientation of life began when the lamb died in their place. These two festivals, repeated year after year, were meant to have a profound impact on shaping God's people. Passover, in chapter 12, he said, begins on the 10th day of the month of Eve. A-V-I-V, Aviv. The 10th day, Passover begins. And then on the 14th day, as it culminates, that's when they would sacrifice the lamb and eat the lamb, put the blood in the doorpost. That's what they would do on the 14th day of this month. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on that same day, the 14th day, and lasted seven days and ended on the 21st day. And right there in the middle, day 14 of this month, that's Liberation Day. And chapter 13, verse 6 tells us that the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was the final day of that feast, that would be a special celebration of God's deliverance. So, both festivals are meant to commemorate the same event. They're different, they're unique festivals, but they're connected. They remember the same event, but they reflect a different aspect of liberation. What do I mean by that? Passover commemorates freedom from death. Passover commemorates freedom from death because it reenacts God's passing over Israel in bringing death to Egypt. Let me ask you, whose firstborns were in danger of the plague of death? Was it just the Egyptians? No, everybody. Right? The Israelites were in danger as well. That means the Israelites deserved the same judgment of death just as much as the Egyptians. And if that were the case, that means that this isn't just a story about political liberation. If that were the case, uh, Israel would just be innocent victims in this story. But no, no, they had the same fear of judgment. And, and the truth is they were sinners of deserving the same judgment as the Egyptians. That's why the Israelites had to put the blood of the lamb, of the spotless lamb, on their doorposts. The lamb was the substitute that died in their place so they'd avoid the judgment of death. And that Passover lamb, of course, was a sign of a greater act of redemption. In Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, who would be our substitute, he would die in our place, take our judgment for sin so that we could be redeemed, set free from slavery to sin and death. So, Passover commemorates freedom from death. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates freedom from slavery. So, Passover, freedom from death. Feast of Unleavened Bread, freedom from slavery. Because it reenacted their quick departure from Egypt. He tells them in these verses 3 to 10, you, no, no leavened bread, no yeast. Right? Why? Because you have to go quick out of Egypt. You have to prepare the bread, get your shoes on, get your pack ready, and you are leaving quick. You don't have time. And so they would reenact that in their bread, in their cooking, because we left quickly. We were freed from slavery, not just death. Notice verse 3 here. At the end of verse 3, God says, For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. That phrase is repeated again in verse 14 and in verse 16. That means it's significant. It tells us that the entire Feast of Unleavened Bread, all the details that are here of how to observe it, were meant to cause the people to remember that God delivered them from bondage by His great power. 
I love Old Testament scholar J.A. Motyer. He describes the institution of the feast as a way of creating, quote, an oasis of remembrance in our lives. An oasis of remembrance. Both feasts were meant to keep the message of God's salvation in front of God's people to guard them from forgetting. See, in the Bible, forgetting leads to forsaking. But the opposite is also true. Remembering leads to persevering. Now, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about the firstborn. And then verses 11 to 16, he continues to instruct the Israelites to observe another act of remembering. That is, set apart your firstborn. Consecrate your firstborn. In Exodus 4, God called Israel my firstborn. Israel is my firstborn, Pharaoh. Let them go. Now that he's redeemed his firstborn son from slavery, they belong to him. What I mean is, God didn't just set Israel free and say, "Woo, you you don't have a cruel master, Pharaoh, any longer. You're free, do whatever you want. No. He says, I set you free from a cruel master. You have true freedom, but true freedom is found in me being your master now. I am Lord. I will lead you. And so he says, instead of sacrificing your firstborn, each family would sacrifice a lamb instead of their firstborn, and they would redeem back their firstborn of their sons and of their beasts, the donkey Sioux. Remember, the firstborn represents the entire family. By dedicating the firstborn to God, every Israelite family was in essence saying, God, our entire family belongs to you. Everything we are, all that we own, all of it belongs to you, Lord. So the redemption of the firstborn was another way of of remembering that God rescued his people from death and slavery through the plague of the firstborn. And so God, every time there's a firstborn, whether of man or beast, we set them apart. This is another remembering opportunity. God, we belong to you. We don't make our own rules. We don't live by our own uh, societal norms. We are set apart for you, God. A regular reminder to acknowledge that. Do you see how how these feasts and festivals were regular rhythms of remembering God's salvation and celebrating them? What about us? Has God given us regular rhythms to remember his salvation? Yeah. Let me just share a few important ways. First, these aren't exhaustive. There's a lot of ways. But a big way, a significant way is the people of God that he calls us to commemorate his salvation is what we're doing right now. By gathering every week on Sundays. The early church knew right away after Jesus died and came back and explained it out to them, they realized, oh, Jesus, we connect the dots. Paul says, Jesus, Jesus is our Passover lamb who took our judgment for sin and death on the cross. He said, we are forgiven, redeemed, made new because we are covered by the blood. And then Jesus rose victoriously from the grave on that Easter Sunday morning. It was literally the resurrection of Jesus on that first day of the week that became the weekly reminder, that weekly rhythm for the early church. We will gather on Sunday. Sunday instead of Saturday. Hebrews 10.25 says, it's a command. It says, do not forsake the gathering of God's people. It's not a matter of preference or convenience. 
It's not a matter of whether you feel like it or don't feel like it. What Pastor Andrew was saying about when he prayed, sometimes we don't feel like it. Well, we don't follow God only when we feel like it, do we? We don't, we don't follow God. We walk by faith, not by sight. And some of the ways that God grows our faith is he calls us to step out in faith even when we don't feel like it, even when things are hard, even when we feel like I have so many other important things. It's probably when you have so many other important things that you need it the most. We need this time to remember and celebrate. You say, well, it's hard to get to church. My body aches. I got young kids. I have lots of kids' activities. I'm tired. All right, look, I've said all those things too. I get it. My body aches. I got young kids. I think the devil has a field day with pastors' families on Sunday mornings. Please hear me. It's hard to get to church, period. I get it. But that's the point. That's actually part of the point. Your intentional commitment to prioritize the weekly gathering will shape the endurance you need to live a faithful Christian life. Let me say it again. Your intentional commitment to prioritize the weekly gathering will shape the endurance needed to live a faithful Christian life. And by the way, and we'll get to this in a minute, I'm jumping ahead, it will also shape the endurance needed to model for your kids that this is most important to you. Not their activities, not something else, not going out on the water on the weekend, not whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever you come up with, that's not most important. This is most important. We remember and we celebrate because God's salvation is more important than anything else on my schedule. We gather to sing God's word. We gather to pray God's word. We gather to hear God's word preach. We gather to give and serve in response to God's word. We gather to literally celebrate Jesus as the Passover lamb in communion. We gather to see new life in baptism, on and on and on. None of that can be replicated at home. You say, well, we kind of did in the pandemic. Well, yeah, tell me how was it? Want to start with me? Preaching to an empty place? Yeah. I was home too. No, none of this can be replicated. It's not the same. God works in unique ways when his people gather to remember and celebrate. So and let me ask you, each one of you, look at me. Do you prioritize gathering every week as an essential means of remembering? If that's a struggle, then my question is, what needs to change? What needs to change? Talk it through with people you trust in your small group, with a friend, over coffee. God, I'm struggling. Okay, there's, God, there's, there's grace upon grace, and grace calls you to obey. We have other festivals too, by the way. We have other things to help us to remember. We celebrate holidays like Christmas and Easter every year. Why? Because it's fun? Because they're presents? Because they're fancy outfits? No. No, that's not why. Those are fine, but that's not the goal. Those holidays help us remember Christmas, the incredible gift of God coming down in the flesh. Easter, Good Friday and Easter, Jesus dying on the cross, rising again. But here's the thing, those holidays offer us this unique opportunity as well to invite our community to celebrate with us. 
That's why we do an Advent sermon series every Christmas to, to, to get our minds and hearts ready for the coming of Jesus, both his first coming, which has already happened, and his second coming, which is yet to come. That's why we do a big community Christmas celebration, and we have live animals, and we do a live nativity, and we do fire pits, and all those fun things. It's not because it's just fun. It's because we want people to know Jesus has arrived. It's a celebration, and it's true. There is freedom and hope and joy in the coming of the Savior. And then we do that at Easter time. We remember, we give thanks, we celebrate. It's why we do things like the beginning of the year. Every first Sunday, right around the beginning of the year, we preach on prayer. Did you know that? For the last six, seven years, we, we preach on prayer, and that, that begins a week of prayer, where as a church, we devote ourselves to prayer. We have built that into our schedule as a church as a regular rhythm of reminding ourselves we are not here in our own strength. We are here to depend on the Lord. Grace Gives, right? We do an entire series in June preparing for the the, the biggest outreach into our community all all year long. Do you see? Just like the Israelites, we need regular reminders, regular rhythms to help us remember God's salvation and celebrate it. Lesson number two, remember God's salvation by sharing it with future generations. These feasts were meant to keep the message of God's salvation in front of his people, to guard them from forgetting. But he didn't just require them, notice, to observe these feasts. He also called them specifically to explain it to their children. Look at verse 8. As he's describing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right in the middle of all these details, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Go back to chapter 12, and he says the same thing about Passover. You shall do this and tell your son, your children, this is what the Lord did in bringing us out of slavery. It's, it's almost as if as a father is preparing the lamb for sacrifice, he would say to his children who are watching, do you remember why we do this? Do you remember, children, why we do this every single year? And they would say, tell us, Father, why? And, they, and then he would give testimony of Yahweh's faithfulness to his people, and not just to his people generally. He, he would talk about it personally. Notice how personal verse 8 is. It is because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, their testimony ensured that God's people never forgot the wonder of their salvation. So let me talk to parents for a moment, and then I'll talk to everybody. Parents, how are you doing in this? How are you doing in imparting God's salvation, sharing of God's salvation with the next generation? This passage convicted me this week. I realize that there are several parts of my own story that are so important to, to shaping me and how God has worked to shape faith into me that I don't regularly talk about with my kids. There are some things they know, and we, and we talk about them, but there are a number of things that I just fail to mention. I don't have a regular rhythm of telling them, do you realize this event shaped my life? There's work for me to do. There's work for me to do about regularly, intentionally sharing it. Let me tell you what Danny Beth and I have done. 
One, one, just if this can give you an example of ways, think, thinking creatively, how do you do this? One of the regular rhythms Danny Beth and I have is that we, to try to cultivate in our marriage, from the very beginning of our marriage, is that at the end of every year, at the end of every calendar year, we sit down together and we have a book and we start writing down, starting in January all the way to December, all the ways that we saw God at work in our marriage and our family over that year. We literally pull out our calendars. What happened? I don't even remember January. I don't remember last week. You remember January? All right, we got to go back. What happened? Oh yeah, do you remember? Do you remember so-and-so came through in this amazing way? Do you remember how God used this situation to grow us? Do you remember this situation that was really, really hard? Yeah. And how God sustained us? And we write those things down year after year. And I, I realized this week, maybe, I invite, maybe we invite our kids into that. I don't know, but, but maybe you could do that. Whatever it takes to remember and give thanks for how God has used the year to shape us, shape you. By the way, this task of sharing is not just entrusted to parents only, but to every adult in God's family. So now every one of us is on the hook here. It is our responsibility as, as, as adults, as those who have, who have been walking with Jesus for a little while, to teach the next generation God's word, sound doctrine, theology, and to share our personal testimonies of how salvation in Jesus has changed our lives. There's a story I share in the new members class. Whenever, if you take a new members class and, I'm, and we teach it, you'll hear this story. When Grace Baptist Church began in 1963, a group of five men and women gathered together and they started praying for, for God to begin a, a new gospel preaching church in this new city of Bowie. Brand new community, they're just building the houses. And these five people met for a year and then they put up their life savings and they bought a house, a, a rancher on Shelter Lane. It's still there. It's a regular house now. They bought that house and that became their church building and they didn't even have a pastor. And they kept praying and then they invited up this, this pastor from, from Texas named Jack Dean and they invite him and his wife and his daughter and they come up here and Jack Dean was pastoring this large church already and he, come up to, he comes up to Bowie and he drives around on a Sunday morning and, and they're thinking, why would he ever come up to this, this, this new work? He's going to go from a membership of five, five, six hundred to a membership of five. What, is gonna, what, what will God use? And he drives around in Bowie and it strikes him. This, and he tells it. This is how the story's been passed down. He saw children playing in their yard. And that was the thing. He said, these children should be in church. They, there should be a church here so that they might know there's a God who loves them and wants them to have a relationship with him and done everything through his son. And so he said, I'm going to leave everything I've known in Texas, come up here to Bowie and begin pastoring this church. And it was the children that brought him here. That was the thing that burdened him. Why do I share that? It sh I share that because it shows that from the birth of this church, we've had this unwavering commitment to reaching younger generations with the gospel. And we won't stop doing it. To teach children and students God's word and to humbly, listen also, to humbly model the Christian life for them. It is often said that for any family or church that the gospel is only one generation away from extinction. Are you personally committed to sharing the gospel and living it out 
for the next generation? Are we collectively committed to doing this still? No matter how hard it'll be, no matter what sacrifices it will take, and to showing what it looks like to live in glad submission to Jesus Christ as Lord in every aspect of our lives. We are not here to raise brilliant, successful, well-liked kids. If they're all those things, awesome, praise God. But most importantly, we're here to raise fully devoted followers of Christ who passionately love God and people. Sharing it with future generations. Lesson number three, remember God's salvation by trusting the faithfulness of God. Verses 17 to 22, God, God shares how he was leading his people. And I don't know about you, but I, let me just say this. As we read in verse 17, he took them the long way, not the short way. I don't know about you, but I love a good shortcut. If you know this, if you know me at all, you know I do things fast, always fast. Faster is better. If there's a way to get somewhere faster, I'll take it. That, that can be a good thing, but often it's not a good thing. But that's not usually the way the Lord takes us in our journey of life, is it? Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Meaning, although it was quicker, God, God could have taken the 40-year route and, and made it a two-week journey, but he didn't. That seems so strange. What are you doing, God? That's ridiculous. But there's a reason God doesn't lead them through the shortcut. Verse 17b, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You see, there were enemies in that direction. And Israel was not ready for battle. You say, they weren't? Didn't, they, didn't it tell us that they, they came out with weapons ready for battle? Yeah, they were equipped for battle. They just weren't ready for battle. And there's a difference. They spent 400 years in captivity. God knew at the first sign of trouble, they would have turned right back around and gone to Egypt. By the way, if you read chapter, uh, the book of Numbers, that's exactly what they said they wanted to do. Ah, there's enemies. Oh, Egypt looks so amazing. What, are you joking? So God takes them the long way, not the short way. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but some of you are in a season of waiting and you wish, you just wish God would speed things up. Please realize that if God were to give you a shortcut, you'd be so unprepared for whatever the next season of life would look like. There are lessons, I say this in various contexts, there are lessons learned going the long way that cannot be learned anywhere else. And I wish that weren't true. But there are lessons learned the long way that aren't learned anywhere else. I mean, good grief. I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to go into ministry my first semester at University of Maryland as I was majoring in pre-med. And I tried to go, and God restrained me, and I was stuck at Maryland for four years. And people asked me, oh, wow, did you, you wasted those four years huh, studying that, huh? That stinks. You get really can't use your medical background. And I felt that. Like, God, am I wasting? No, God, God knew what he was doing. Now looking back, I realized what God knew all along. 
that I needed those four years at University of Maryland. I needed to be a context where I was living with Christians through university in a local church, and I was living out my faith in a very antagonistic setting. That was good for me, for where I was. And I learned how to think critically through those classes, and it gave me a, a sense of beauty and awe of God's glory in creation. It's always his mercy to take us the long way. And along the way, God will show his faithfulness as a way of growing your faith. We must learn to trust God's faithfulness, that he is shaping us through it. And then look at verse 19. It says, the Israelites didn't just take up the spoils out of Egypt, they also took Joseph's bones. You realize, over this, again, over 400 years ago, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, had this painful and long journey. We already preached about it in Genesis. And he has this long journey. It ultimately leads him to become prime minister of Egypt. And it was in that role that allowed him to bring his entire family to Egypt to be saved from a famine in the land. And it says, before Joseph died, he made his final wishes clear. The last verses of Genesis are this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel, his brothers, swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Isn't that incredible? Joseph had confidence in the promise made to his fathers that God would bring them into the land of promise and make them into a great nation. The Israelites were fulfilling their commitment to Joseph right here. But more importantly, God was fulfilling his commitment to Israel. Joseph believed God would always be faithful to his promises. And he said, when, when you leave Egypt, not if, when, take my bones with you. And they did. Like Joseph, we believe God is always faithful to his promises. As Christians, we know, as the New Testament says, that all of God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. God is still a promise-keeping God. It's what his name Yahweh means. Do you believe that God is faithful? Do you? What promise today do you need to hold on to? What promise today do you need to put your confidence in so that you might continue to walk by faith? One of my favorites is Romans 8.32. If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God would send his own son and, to give, and meet the greatest need, will he not provide for every other need? That's a promise I turn to time and time again. And then I love how the chapter ends, verses 20 to 22. And they moved from Succoth and a camp that eat them on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went up before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We see God leading his people by his own presence. It says the Lord went before them. The Lord. Yes, it was in the form of a cloud and fire, but it was the Lord. 
And it says he did not depart from before his people. He never left them. He never took a break. He never got distracted. He was always with them. Does that sound familiar? Those are the final words of Jesus when he sends his disciples out. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, for I am with you always. It's the very end of the age. Now you might be thinking, well, I would kind of rather have a cloud show me what job to take. Like if I had a cloud like in front of that building, oh great. Right? If I had a fire over a school, that's the school I'm supposed to go to. Great. No, no, we have something better. Don't, don't think this is so good. We have something better. You know, get this. I'm going to blow your mind. We have the presence of God living inside of us. That should blow your mind. That should be like, what? It's, it's amazing. It's too good to be true. I know it's really true. The Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your body, the dwelling place of God. You don't need a cloud. You don't need a fire. You won't need a tabernacle. No, because no longer God is just with us. It is God in us. And so now you have the, the Spirit of God Himself in you. And what does He do? He convicts you of sin that's still there. He empowers you to kill sin, put sin to death. He, he provides divine comfort for every sorrow. He leads you into all truth, John 17. He helps you have, to have wisdom in every situation. He gives you a, a, an experiential understanding of the love of God, Romans 5. He sustains your hope in future glory. And he keeps you persevering in faith until your final breath on earth. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Christian, because of what Jesus has done for you in the Passover lamb, God now dwells in you. Does that encourage you today? Do you know, do you know what Jesus has done to rescue you from slavery? If you're not a Christian, you might think, well, I'm not enslaved. I'm free. But God's word is clear that apart from Christ, you are enslaved to sin and death. Apart from Christ, you cannot rescue yourself. You can't earn your way to God. You can't climb up the mountain or up the ladder to God. There are not many paths to God. There's only one path, and you can't get there yourself. And so what does God do? He comes down to us in Jesus, the perfect Son of God, God's firstborn. He represents the family. He's fully God, and so he could fulfill the law of God. He obeys God's law perfectly and lives a life that you and I should have lived but could never live. And yet he's fully man. And so on the cross, Jesus could be our true substitute. Not a lamb, uh, not a lamb, right? The, in Exodus, do this every year, every generation. Keep doing it. Keep sacrificing. Keep sacrificing. And then Jesus comes and he says, I am the once and for all sacrifice. One time for all people and all time. Bearing our guilt, dying for our sin. And three days later, he walks out of the tomb alive, victorious over, over sin, over death, over the grave, and he gives everyone freedom from sin and death through his shed blood if you receive it by faith. When you admit your sin and turn and trust in Jesus Christ alone, he rescues you from all of sin's consequences. You are forgiven, adopted, made new, new identity, new freedom. He'll never leave you, and you have glory upon glory yet to come. Do you need to trust in Christ today for the very first time? 
Christian, remember God's salvation and celebrate it regularly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take your word and lodge it deep into our hearts that it might bear fruit. Some of us need a reminder. Some of us need to remember what you have done because of the sin still in our hearts, because of the struggles we're still having. We need a reminder that because our guilt is gone, because our shame is gone, there is a new power, a new ability to say yes to godliness and no to sin. Help us remember today. Some of us need to remember what you did on Calvary, that you rose from the dead because the sorrows of life are weighing down on us, crushing us. It feels like blow after blow, but Jesus, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would remind those of us who are hurting, who are feeling weary and tired, that you carry us. You are the good shepherd, that the empty tomb reminds us that nothing, nothing is greater than you. You have victory over every sorrow, and one day you will make all things new. Some of us don't want to obey, don't want to listen. God, our hearts have been hardened. Would you just soften hearts even now? Even now, bring salvation to those who don't need to remember it, but need to receive it. Bring the new birth. Bring the joy of salvation to those who can call upon Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I receive you by faith. Lord, may this be that day for those who are listening and need to respond. Would you be our vision, no matter where we are, be our vision in life and even in death. We pray in Christ's name, amen.